Welcome everyone to Beaches Chapel Online Good Friday service. Uh, before we get started with the word tonight, I wanted to say two things. First, we're gonna be talking in detail about uh, the death of Jesus tonight. And uh, so if there's any young ones watching parents, I just wanna make sure you're aware of that, that things could get um, a little graphic for them. And also we're gonna be taking communion tonight at the end of the word. And so if you don't have a piece of bread or juice or anything like that ready right now, why don't you just go ahead and pause the video and um, go to the kitchen and find something that you can use for communion later on. Okay, so let's get right into it. I wanna, I wanna talk tonight about Good Friday and what that really means according to scripture and uh, just really, really come back into remembrance about what Jesus did for us on this very somber and amazing night. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna read through uh, John's account, the Gospel of John, and just pick out some verses and, and look at them in, in great detail and just spend some time in the word tonight and let the word tell us the story, amen. So let's turn to John chapter 18 and we're gonna start in verse one. And this is, this, is the, this is all the beginning of it. This is the very onset of everything that is to come for Jesus in the death. His, his life has been one big crescendo up until this moment. And this is a big moment. And so here we are. Picking it up in John chapter 18, verse one, it says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who, had, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Okay, so we're gonna stop there. And first we're gonna see that Judas is highlighted in this. If you don't know who Judas is, he was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. He was one of his followers. He, he went everywhere with Jesus for three years of Jesus's ministry. He ate with him, he traveled with him, he saw saw firsthand the miracles that Jesus did and he betrays Jesus. And this scene shows here, Judas bringing this detachment of soldiers into the garden to find Jesus. And I wanna just stop and consider this scene for a second because there is, it's, it's almost laughable. If it wasn't so sad and, and heavy, it would, it, there's the lunacy of this scene is, is beyond words. And what I mean by that is to say that, listen, Jesus is the son of a carpenter, right? By all accounts, he was homeless. He, he and his disciples, we're talking about fishermen and tax collectors and even a doctor and all, you know, none of these guys posed a threat, physically, I mean, to the Roman government and to the church. They were not trained soldiers or assassins here by any means. They were just regular guys. And even Jesus addresses this later and says, look, you saw me preaching in the temple. We've taught, you've seen me. Like, why are you coming with all these people? And what I really wanna point out is that word detachment that the Bible says. It says, guiding a detachment of soldiers. And that word detachment is, is in the Greek means a Roman cohort, okay? And there's about three different meanings for, for that word. And, and I won't break it down too much, but I will say this, that basically the, this word detachment means it was either roughly a group of 600 soldiers, okay? Or 1,200 soldiers, or at minimum around 250 soldiers. Okay, so the best case scenario here is we have a detachment of Roman soldiers who are trained, right? Who have armor on, who have weaponry. 
And at the, at the, at the best case scenario, it is 12 against 250 soldiers. And so what I mean by the lunacy of all this is that very thing. And, you know, we, we see later on in the story, we're not going to talk about it tonight, but if you read the rest of this, we see that Peter, one of the disciples, has a sword with him and he uses it. But we're talking about a fisherman with a sword here. One fisherman with one sword, not an entire cohort or a detachment of trained soldiers with weaponry, okay? So what we're seeing here is absolute insanity, and here Jesus is with his 12 disciples and then this detachment comes in and they're carrying torches and lanterns and weapons, okay? So let's keep reading now, picking it up in verse four. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Okay, and there's two things that I wanna, I wanna kind of pick apart from this verse alone. And the first one is, such an important part of this entire story, not just this scene in the garden, but the entire story of Good Friday is found in John chapter 18, verse four, when it says, knowing all that was going to happen to him. Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him on this night. And we're gonna get to all that happens, but I'll say it right now, what is about to happen to him is brutal. It is brutal and he knew what was going to happen and he, and he doesn't fight it, okay? He submits to what is about to happen to him. You know, there's times in our life when we anticipate something bad happening to us, right? Where we, and, and, and there's all sorts of reactions that we have, but none of them are like what Jesus does right here. Knowing what is about to happen to him, what does he do? He gets in front of it. Right, he gets in front of these soldiers. And what I, mean, what I mean by that is he doesn't wait for them to come find him because what we, what we know about these torches and these lanterns suggests not that they needed the light because it was at night, but because they thought that they were actually going on a manhunt. When they come to this garden, they're not anticipating Jesus coming up to them and saying, hey, here I am. They think that they're gonna actually have to spread out and go looking for him in all the caves and all the dark crevices of this garden in this night. And they're gonna have to pull him out and arrest him like they would some other criminal. Like he's gonna resist this arrest. And so what Jesus does, knowing what is gonna happen to him, actually gets out in front of that and says, no, you don't, gotta, you don't have to come looking for me. I'm right here. And I'm gonna start the discussion, which is just absolutely incredible. And so he asks again, who is it you want? Who are you looking for? I'm, I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna ask that from you. Who do you want? In verse five, they say, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And Jesus says, I am he. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them and says, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And you know, this this verse, verse six of chapter 18, I, I really don't believe is talked about enough because what we see here is a miracle. This is a miracle that is happening in the garden in the midst of Jesus being arrested. And what happens here, if we're paying attention to, to the scripture, we see that when Jesus confesses who he is, when he says, I am he, I am Jesus of Nazareth, he's not just saying, that's my name. He's saying, when he says, I am, he's saying, I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the coming king. And when he utters those words, when that confession comes forth from his mouth, it says that they, they drew back 
and they fell to the ground. This detachment of Roman soldiers and all these officials that are with him, when he speaks those words, when he basically, when he's saying, I am God, they drew, they drew back and they fall to the ground. In other words, they cannot stand the weight of what Jesus is saying. When, when I picture this in my own mind, I, I think about like a sound wave coming out of Jesus's mouth and it's such a strong force that it knocks them over. And that is what is happening here. The confession of who he is is so insanely powerful that this detachment of soldiers, be it 250 or 1200, are all knocked to the ground because of Jesus's confession of who he is. This is a, he is speaking about his divine deity, all right? And what we see here is when Jesus speaks of who he is, nothing can stand against it, okay? Nothing can stand against the identity and the truth of who Jesus is as the son of God. No detachment of soldiers, nothing that you ever face in life, no virus, no pandemic, nothing can stand in the presence of God when he professes who he is. And this happens, this happens in the garden as he's about to be arrested. It is a powerful, amazing thing. And then it says, and we continue in verse seven, again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. And so as we read these few verses, Jesus's character is continuing to be unfolded verse by verse here, okay? In, in, in verse four, we, we see that he is all knowing. In this, in this moment, he knows what is about to happen to him and he submits anyway, all right? So he's all knowing in this situation. Nothing that is happening to him is taking him off guard, right? Nothing is taking him by surprise. Nothing is sneaking up on him, he's all knowing. And then in verse five and six, we see that he, is, he has all the authority in this situation. Let's, let's not forget that. Let's not lose sight of that. That Jesus knowing everything also has all the authority. He has all the authority to, to have this stop if he wants to, okay? Jesus can stop this from happening because he has all the authority because that confession of who he is is true. And then one of the most amazing things happens here as well. Jesus is very literally and also figuratively by having this conversation with the officials and with the guards, he is putting himself between the guards and his disciples. And we see that at the end of verse eight when he says, then let these men go. Jesus, think about, think about this for a second. It's unbelievable. When he's about to get arrested and killed, for the sake of his followers, his disciples, and, and you and me, he is in that moment putting himself between the guards and his disciples. He is very much protecting his disciples. These same disciples who he knows are going to scatter once he's arrested. They're gonna leave him. One of them's actually gonna deny him three times. Again, Jesus knowing all that is going to happen, including the reaction of his disciples, okay, puts himself between the guards and his disciples and said, hey, here I am, let them go. I'm here, I'm the one you're looking for. You're not looking for them, you're looking for me. You're looking for me, so let them go. He is protecting the very ones that, he, that is causing him to die. 
And the, the same is true for us. Jesus over and over and over again, throughout our day and throughout our life, continually puts himself between us and the enemy. And he's protecting us every single day. And it started even before his death. It starts at the moment that he's being arrested. It's incredible. So we're gonna fast forward now. Jesus has been arrested and he's been brought to Pilate who's, who's governing over this whole trial. And, and it says in John chapter 19, verse one, the very beginning of John chapter 19. So we're in the next chapter of the gospel of John. It's almost said so quick that we can read over it and, and not even really appreciate what is happening here. And it says in verse one that says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Right, and then the story just kind of continues on from there. Like that's all it says about him being flogged in this moment, that's it. It doesn't go into a great description of it, but I want to tonight, this is where things get a little bit graphic. Okay, but I, but, but I want to talk about this because we need to understand what Jesus went through for us on this Good Friday. When Jesus is flogged, he's flogged by this, this whip that's called a flagrum. And a flagrum is a whip with long leather tails and it had sheep's bones braided into the straps. Okay, and so when we, you know, you, maybe you've seen movies or, or things where that depicts someone getting whipped on their back or being flogged and you see a whip and it, and it hits them and it leaves, you know, a long red, you know, stripe of blood on their back. And that is painful enough as it is. But what we read here is not that. That pales in comparison to what Jesus went through because this flagrum that had these tails at the end, all of them with sheep's bone woven into it, didn't just hit his back. They actually stuck into his back. And then as, as the lector, as it was the person that did the whipping, the lector, as they would, as they would sink into his back and, and, and grip his back, they would yank it out and, and actually flesh, chunks of flesh would come off of, of Jesus's back. And it actually says that the Romans were experts in torture and they were able to beat a man to within an inch of his life without killing him. That was their goal, was to get, them, was to get their victim as close to, to death, that line of death as they could without allowing the victim to die. Okay, so they wanted to do everything that they possibly could to the victim except kill them because that would actually, they'd be better off that way. And so that's what they would do. And it said, this type of beating sent the man into shock after five minutes. And, and the wounds took months to heal. And the lector, the person doing the whipping would whip three or four times. Think about this, three or four times and then, and then rest. So the, the lector, the person doing the whipping would rest after three or four whips while people that were watching, okay? The people that were watching would hurl insults at the person. And the person, in this case, Jesus, if Jesus passed out, they'd wait for him to wake up before starting again because the pain was so severe, it would, it would make the victim pass out and they would actually wait. They would wait until they woke back up and then they, they would continue in the whipping. So we, we see here that in, in verse, verse one of chapter 19, when it says that he was flogged, I mean, he was beaten brutally. And this is before he's even on the cross. This Jesus knew was coming. This is what he put himself in front of. He knew this was gonna happen. And he submitted his authority to this. Let's continue. Verse two, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe 
and went up to him again and again saying, hail king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. So there's insult to injury at this point as well. This detachment of soldiers, after he's confessed who he is, they fall to the ground. Jesus is now allowing these soldiers to slap him in the face, to mock him. They put this crown of thorns on his head. They give him a purple robe, which is supposed to signify nobility. And, and they're mocking him all right after he's been flogged. Jesus still catching his breath, trying to get his remain conscious. And this is what he's hearing. It's brutal. Skipping down to verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. Think about this. He's carrying his own cross after having his entire back opened up. He can't do it after a while. He has someone else carry it for him, but they put the cross on his back for him to carry. This thing is not light. It says, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And I want to just talk about crucifixion for a second because, you know, we have people that wear a cross around their neck. We see them, we see crosses on stage. We see them outside churches and it can kind of water down what crucifixion is. And we know that even we can say Jesus was nailed to a cross and, 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 and understand the pain of that. But I really, for a moment, wanna just actually talk about what it was. And I'm gonna read out of Charles Swindoll's book, uh, The Greatest Life of All of Jesus. And it's a biography of Jesus. And he, he talks about in this book, crucifixion. I'm just gonna read a few excerpts of this. The first one says that crucifixion brought together four qualities the Romans prized most in execution. It says unrelenting agony, protracted death, public spectacle, and utter humiliation. It goes on to say that the executioner could suspend the victim using nails instead of rope, which caused death within hours instead of days. Whereas the victim suffered for a shorter time, the intensity of his agony can barely be imagined. Physicians have determined through a combination of means that the victim would have been nailed to the cross through the hand at the, at the base of the palm and at an angle so that the nail exited the wrist. So the, the nail would go in here and it would actually come out around here. It wasn't a direct shot. It was actually through the arm and coming out the wrist. Because this, this not only supported the weight of the person, but it also caused him the greatest amount of pain. It says the pain is so exquisite and described as unrelenting, peculiar burning or searing sensation that is so intense that even gentle contacts like clothing or air drafts cause utter torture. So basically, if there was a breeze, if the wind blew just a little bit, it would cause utter torture. It may be aggravated by movement, jarring, noise, or emotion. The pain traverses the arm like lightning bolts. The patient becomes completely preoccupied with avoiding any contact and holding the limb in a particular way. Victims frequently go into shock if the pain is not controlled. And it says, unless the guards broke the legs of the victim, the primary cause of death for nailed victims were likely uh, shock, traumatic shock or cardiac and respiratory arrest. 
Since a victim nailed to a cross, like someone tied in place, also had to keep his body in constant motion. So consider that. All they wanted to do was be still because if they moved, it caused, it caused incredible pain. But in order to breathe, they had to move. So they were actually fighting against themselves. And it says that his body in constant motion to relieve the pain in his arms, chest, and legs, which only agitated the damaged nerves and the nail wounds. Later, as fatigue set in, breathing would have been difficult, requiring more and more effort. And so what we see here, and I, I hope this paints somewhat of a picture, is that the pain in their body was so severe that they, the last thing they ever wanted to do was move. But in order to breathe, they had to move. So with every breath, they, ha, they, they endured, and um, Jesus endured incredible pain. So with every breath caused pain, but if they didn't breathe, they would die. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen, having full authority because of who he was, stayed on the cross. He endured this pain. He stood in between the enemy and us to protect us. And he did that by enduring this horrible, horrible death. I could stay here all night and I could try to explain how painful it was for him and I could not do it. I could not do it. No words, no retelling as, as well-written and researched as it could possibly be will ever articulate the pain that Jesus went through on this Good Friday for us. With full authority, he stood in the gap and he said, I am going to endure this to protect you. Verse 28 says, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Listen, Jesus did not endure all of this so that we could hear about his death and then say, okay, I have to now get my life right so I can accept him as my Lord and Savior. He did this because he knew that we could never get our lives right. He did this so that he could get our lives right. And I wanna talk specifically to those that are watching tonight that have said, I've done too much. Or that, yeah, I'll, I'll start going to church. I'll receive Jesus as my savior. I'll start doing this whole Christian thing, but I gotta get my life right first. No, no. Jesus did not stand in the gap for us and endure this torture just to say, you gotta go do this now. He did this to prove his love for us. Listen, I'm not reading this to gross anybody out. I'm not talking about his death so that we could get a knot in our stomach, okay? I'm, I'm reading this and explaining Jesus' death to prove to you that he loved you and he would do anything for you, including laying aside his authority and standing between the enemy and us and saying, I got this and I will endure the most brutal death known to man so that you can spend eternity with me because I know that you can't do it alone. And those words that we read here, it is finished, are true. It's done, it's over. The price has been paid. 
And so I wanna give you an opportunity tonight to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to stop thinking that one, you've either done too much to receive this gift or two, to think that, that it's all up to you because it's not. Jesus took, he took that and he put it, put it on himself when he endured on the cross. He loves you. He loves you. What kept him on the cross was you. What kept him on the cross was the hope of eternity with you. He stood in between the enemy and us and said, here I am, take me, don't take them. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. And if that's you tonight, I would just wanna encourage you to repeat this after me. It's not a complicated prayer. You know, the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's his promise to us. This, these words, it is finished. means it's enough. It's enough. He's done it all. There's nothing more that we have to do except receive it and believe it. So let's bow our heads and please repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you stood in the gap for me. I believe that you lived, that you died, that you suffered a horrific death for me. And I believe that you were raised from the dead and you are sitting in heaven now, all for me. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to come into my heart and to be Lord of my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I wanna ask that you call our church Facebook message our church, email our church. Our phone number is 904-241-4211. Our email is info at beacheschapel.com. You can find us on all social media and let us know how we can be praying for you. Because now if you've prayed that prayer, you are now part of the family and heaven is rejoicing. And Jesus is saying, it was worth it. It was worth it because you just received me as your, as your, as your savior. There's a party going on in heaven right now because of the prayer that you just prayed. So let us know, let us know how we can be praying for you, how we can walk alongside you. Tonight, I think it's only fitting as well that we, that we remember this death that Jesus endured with communion. So if you have bread and juice around you, let's go ahead and bow our heads and let's, let's take communion. Father, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for what you did on that Good Friday for standing in between the enemy and us and volunteering yourself, even though at any moment you could have stopped with full authority, you could have stopped it, but you endured, Father. You endured a brutal beating. You endured humiliation and the mocking, Lord. You endured severe pain on the cross, more pain than we could ever understand. And you stayed, Father, for us. We thank you, Jesus, now for those words that you spoke, it is finished. Those last words on the cross, it is finished. Father, we thank you for that. And right now, Lord, we take this bread and we, we remember your body that was beaten over and over again until an inch of your life, until your life was ultimately taken, though only for a moment. And Father, we take this bread and we say, thank you. Thank you for being our sacrifice, 
the perfect lamb, a spotless record, no sin. You volunteered your life, your body, and you submitted to death. And Father, we take this bread right now and say, thank you, Lord, for what you did for us on that Good Friday night. And Father, we take our cup. Lord, we thank you for your blood that was shed over and over again with every whip, with the nails through your hands, through your legs. That blood representing your mercy and your grace and salvation for us, Lord, that is poured out on us every single day. That blood that makes us new every single day. That when we come to you, Lord, and we say, I'm sorry, forgive me, you do so because your blood makes us new because it's enough, Father. Thank you for that, Jesus, that this was not just a one-time miracle, but it's something that we get to experience every single day because of your blood that was shed. So thank you, Father. Thank you for making us new every day and not holding records of our wrongs, but washing us clean, not allowing sin to stain us every day, but to make us clean by the blood that you shed. Let's take the cup. We love you, Lord. And God, we thank you so much, Jesus, for what you did, for what you did. And we thank you that when you said those words, it is finished. We know that there's so much more to come. The, the, the crucifixion was finished. The sacrifice was finished. But truthfully, Lord, it's only the beginning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.